if you don't do it, what kind of regrets will you have? And I always ask people, fast forward 20, 30, 40 years when you're reflecting on your life, the idea is not to have too many regrets. And if it means that you will feel that you're sorry that you didn't do it, that's the reason for doing it. Welcome to the Aligned Influence Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs and innovators about what it means to live on purpose. My name is Kyle Bowe. I'm an entrepreneur passionate about helping people live more meaningful, fulfilling, and purpose-driven lives. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Aligned Influence Podcast. My name is Kyle Bowe, and I am your host. One of the focuses for today's episode is self-doubt. Self-doubt is something that I've experienced, especially at significant and key turning points in my life. Things like moving out to California from New Jersey, starting a new job as a teacher, and then eventually leaving that job as a teacher and entering into the uncertainty of entrepreneurship. So when I moved to San Diego from New Jersey, it was to go to graduate school at San Diego State University. And before I moved to San Diego, I was at home in New Jersey a few weeks before I was supposed to leave on Craigslist looking for jobs. While I was on Craigslist looking for jobs, I received an email from the director of the program that I was going to for graduate school. He asked if I wanted to teach public speaking. And I actually wondered if he had seen my transcripts. I failed public speaking the first time that I took it because of how terrified I was. So I stopped going to class. And then the second time I took it, I did the bare minimum to pass. I got a C minus. I didn't do any of the activities. I just showed up and did the speeches and did the bare minimum to pass the class because of how terrified of public speaking I was. So when I saw that he wanted me to teach public speaking, I wondered if they were a bit crazy. But I also just accepted it because I was like, well, I need a job. They're offering me some money. Let me do this. How hard could it be? And then during the first week of training, I actually found out how hard it could be. All of the graduate teaching assistants that have been hired to teach this class had to give a 10-minute demo. I did my demo on Friday. So all week, I had been absolutely dreading it, not looking forward to it, didn't want to do it, wasn't excited about it. And eventually, my turn comes. I get up. I have everyone circle up. And then I go black. I forgot everything that I was supposed to say. And I think my presentation lasted all of about two and a half minutes. And I came to shaking and sitting down without any sort of recollection of what happened in between there. Still don't know. What I do know is that it was historically bad. So how do we go from doing something like that to then becoming a public speaking teacher and now to leading workshops, to doing coaching, to doing presentations in front of hundreds of people, and really to loving public speaking? How do we act in spite of the fear, in spite of the failure, How do we use that as a tool to propel us? That's what I talked to my guest on today's episode about. My guest on today's episode is Dr. Cindy Waller. Dr. Waller is an executive coach who is recognized for enhancing communication skills, leadership style, and mentoring capabilities to increase the bench strength of an organization. 
She is an expert in helping organizations and individuals remove obstacles to success. Dr. Waller received her Bachelor of Arts degree with honors in psychology from McGill University in Montreal, then earned her doctorate in psychology from the University of Ottawa. I reached out to, to Dr. Waller to be on the podcast because I heard her on a different episode, and she was just incredibly insightful. And when I was doing research on this episode, I saw how much she had to offer for tools and strategies for overcoming self-doubt. And I knew that was what I had to talk to her about because it was something that I was experiencing in hosting a podcast and I know is such a common experience for so many of us in our day-to-day lives. So on this episode, Dr. Wallace shares a lot of strategies for overcoming self-doubt, for living life without regret, and for living a meaningful and purposeful life. I'm really grateful to Cindy for coming on this episode. I know I got a lot out of it, and I hope you also find it helpful. Thank you for listening. Hey, Cindy, how are you? Good, and you, Kyle? I'm doing really well. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I've been really excited ever since you agreed to come on, and I'm grateful to you for that. So thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here, and it's a privilege. I want to just start with a brief explanation about the work that you do how you got into it, and how your interest started to shift towards leadership coaching, leadership development. So I started within the corporate sector, traditional corporations that include pharma, insurance, banking, packaged goods, and basically work with two different types of employee groups. So those who are considered high potentials, emerging leaders, and helping support them through their career transition, help them with promotions and advancing their career, and then very seasoned leaders who may have a new mandate, who may have a new geography, and are required to adopt a different leadership skill set to be successful and get their mandate across to the entire enterprise. The reason that I first reached out to you was that I heard you on a podcast where you were discussing entitlement. And I think as a millennial, and as someone right who's tired of hearing that millennials are entitled and all of this, I was super interested in, in just that line of thought. So I'm curious how you became interested in entitlement. So I think with any cross-section of the population, whether it's an employee group or the general population, there is a percentage of the population that feels deserving, entitled from the point of view, they may not have to put in their sweat equity. They feel they can get ahead just based on showing up. And it's important to differentiate and to teach those who are entitled what dues they need to pay based on seniority, based on hard work they have to put in, based on the value they add to the organization. So you don't just get rewarded for showing up. And so part of there is a learning curve amongst the entitled to teach them around what it is they need to do, skills they need to have, so that they feel that they are successful and do make advances within the organization. And then, of course, millennials, well, it's our largest consumer group. As you know, a millennial is defined as anyone right now between the age of 22 and 37. So anyone born approximately in the early 80s to mid 90s. And so this is a very large captive audience. And as you suggest, Kyle, who I think had an unfair reputation, unfair views and perceptions around their contributions to society and the workplace. And it's important for all of us to support millennials because they do add an important contribution and value and we have to set the record straight on what it is they offer. So I just want to back up a little bit then because I think we talk a lot about entitlement, but we don't often define what it is. So I'm curious from your perspective, what is entitlement and how does that manifest in an individual and in organizations? 
So entitlement can mean different things, and the sources vary. Entitlement might mean that you feel worthy of a promotion, of a larger salary, of greater opportunities, because you feel that you are brighter, smarter, more attractive, more compelling on very different levels than somebody else, and that you are better, better. And because you're better, better, then you should be automatically awarded certain privileges. And so those who are entitled do feel they deserve more. They really enjoy themselves very much. And recently I heard a fantastic definition of somebody who's entitled. Lots of entitled people may in fact be narcissist and very sort of self-centered. And the definition I heard, one of the best definitions of a narcissist or somebody's entitled is a person who actually owns the home projector and the screen at the same time. So it's about wanting to see your reflection because you have the best reflection. And if you think about it in the workplace, that is very alienating because you lead with yourself and not the team. That's a great definition. So I'm curious where a sense of entitlement comes from. Does it start as early as childhood in the home or is this something that we pick up later on in life? That's a great question. So there may be different parental influences. So if you grow up in a home where you parents indulge you, make you feel special and give you all kinds of accolades for some very basic things like clearing the table, making your bed, things that we would regard as automatic and part of carrying your weight in the home, but make you feel that you are a king, queen, prince, princess of the family, then you do internalize and adopt the attitude that you are extraordinary and that you are there's something spectacular about you and therefore privilege. That's one influence. And so that helps shape our self-perception and our self-image. There are others who may grow up in a home where the experience is quite different, sadly, where parents are very tough on their children and they are told basically they're not good enough. And when you're not good enough, then you feel like you're failing. And to be able to internalize that failure is very hard because it is plays on our self-esteem, our self-worth. And so we can overcompensate to ward off those feelings of inadequacy by feeling entitled. And so you show off as superior. And again, that ends up being offsetting and a very unattractive quality to most people around because you really put yourself apart from others and see yourself in every realm as better. And then what entitled people tend to do or can do is they attract single fans, they attract followers who just agree with how special they are. Anyone who wants to challenge an entitled person's point of view is usually someone that is cast aside by that entitled person because they don't want to face any conflict and they don't want to have a mirror held up in front of them unless they're the ones holding up the mirror to themselves. Right. The idea then again that we have both the projector and the screen, right? So we're not trying to see someone else's reflection of us or our behaviors... That's right. And that goes against the entire antithesis of how do we improve, whether it's our contribution to the world, to the planet, to the firm, to the organization. It is about getting feedback from other people around our leadership brand, how we show up, and those people who have an openness around how can I improve my communication skills, how I relate to you, how I contribute to the team. Those people, of course, are always students of the universe. They're learning, therefore they're open, and therefore they improve their impact. That's a really powerful idea to me that 
entitlement exists in sort of two different ways, right? One is that you're overconfident. And then the other one is that you're underconfident. Because I, I tended to think about entitlement as just this like, I'm amazing. I don't need any help, right? I know everything. I deserve the world. I've never thought about it in having self-doubt, right? And not being confident and not being open to feedback as a way to shut that out as well. I think that's a really powerful idea. Yes. And it's uh, in a way what you're alluding to, it is a defense mechanism to ward off that self-doubt for sure. And so I guess what are some other ways that self-doubt leads to entitlement? So in terms of how self-doubt can lead to entitlement is that you believe, for example, if we take the context of work that, you know, within a few months or within a year, whatever it is that you are entitled to a bonus, that you're entitled to a promotion, that you're entitled to a corner office, that you should get certain privileges and benefits just by being there because you do feel that entitled person feels that they are extraordinary in some way. And they may not have anything to prove for that, except for the fact that they feel that way, that that's their self-perception. Rather than what contributions have I made? What difference have I made? How do I differentiate myself from everybody else in a good way to show how I've left a legacy, how I've made my mark? Those are people who would deserve to be rewarded as opposed to an entitled person who says, I'm here and you should be grateful because I'm here. So I help organizations by participating in interview panels when they have candidates who are on a short list and that I can add another lens in terms of probing around the skills and do the skills align with the job profile. And at one point we were interviewing a woman for a particular position and she turned to me and she said, you know, you really should be videotaping this interview. And I said, we should be videotaping you. And she says, yes. And I said, why should we be videotaping you? And so she says, well, I'm just that good. I'm just that good at interviewing. So you can imagine every one of us had to keep a straight face and not react the way you just did because it was outlandish and it was outrageous. But that in itself was a great data point for, of course, for us to take her off the short list <laughs> because she thought so highly of herself that basically she suggested that the videotape of the interview could be an instructional manual guide for other interviewers. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because videotaping yourself can actually be a powerful tool for feedback, for analyzing yourself. Right? I used to teach public speaking, and one of the things that a lot of my colleagues did was they videotaped their students speaking. And they said, hey, this is a really great way for you to observe yourself. So in that way, it can be a great tool. But if you're just sitting back saying like, it's because I'm so great. It's like, mm, you know, yeah, like you're right. That might be a, a sense of entitlement. No, you're right, Kyle. And I think when we videotape ourselves in the context that you're talking about for, you know, executive presence, presentation skills, it's fantastic in the moment feedback that helps us modify, fine tune our body language, tone of voice, how we articulate, and it is very powerful within the right context. I want to get back to this idea of self-doubt and entitlement because the self-doubt is something that I've struggled with, right? Imposter syndrome, whether it's being a, a new graduate trying to get a job or transitioning careers, right? Even starting a podcast, right? As a public speaking professor, I was like, oh, I can do this. I can speak publicly. I'm comfortable talking to people. But then I shift atmospheres, almost like a shift in careers to shift into podcasting and the self-doubt kicks back in. So how do we balance that overcoming the self-doubt while avoiding a sense of entitlement or like a sense of, you know, almost over striving, right? The whole fake it till you make it where you end up becoming like too confident. Great question. 
So first off, if we're truly honest, if every single one of us is truly honest with who we are, every person on this planet experiences self-doubt. We just do. It's a normal human experience. And to your point, you want to be able to mitigate and curtail that so it doesn't affect how we show up or doesn't affect choices that we make. And I always tell my clients that if you're in a seat, if you are in a relationship, a personal intimate relationship, if you are a partner in a firm or if you're an employee, if you're embarking on a podcast, you're in the seat for a reason. That is, you have a set of skills that somebody else wants, you have a unique personality, and you have a unique way of putting this together and presenting it to the universe, to the world, to whoever your target audience is. And so part of how we need to combat self-doubt is around the self-talk that we have, around saying, I deserve just as much as anybody else. I'm not lesser. I am equally smart as anybody else and talented. And maybe my smarts or my talent is different than somebody else, but I'm just as deserving to be here because I have a point of view, I have a perspective, and I have something to say. And when you can overcome that and then you get traction, then it does reinforce, well, people do want to hear what we have to say. People are interested. You don't have to please the world. Your goal is not to have a massive fan club, but your goal is to have enough followers who are interested and intrigued with your perspective on the world. It seems like a lot of it is about being inwards as well, right? I think even with self-doubt, what I think about sometimes is I'm actually being selfish here, especially if like my goal with the podcast is to show up and hopefully make a positive contribution in people's lives. And I'm not doing that because I'm afraid, because I don't think I'm worthy, because I don't think I'm unique enough. I don't think I have enough skills. I'm actually being selfish because I'm not showing up and doing the work that I think I'm supposed to do, right? That, to try to make a positive impact on other people. And so it's interesting because it's like self-doubt. I can, it can still be selfish. And so it seems like the key is to sort of make it about other people. So that's a great question. I, and I do love your term, Kyle, about being selfish. And I think we need to sort of turn the definition of selfish and the meaning around. We think of being selfish as something that's negative, as something that's self-consuming and self-absorbed. But there is a healthy aspect to selfish. And so selfish means that... I do have a right to be here. I do have something to say. And I have a perspective that I want to share. That's not selfish in a negative way. It's that you have a perspective that may be creative, that may be innovative, that's interesting. And so what we need to do as a strategy is when we have self-doubt, the problem is is that we end up comparing ourselves to other people. Well, there are other people doing podcasts, and look how successful they are, and look the followership they have, and the revenue they're able to generate, and they may be more attractive than I am, and perhaps they're more charismatic, whatever it might be. But the idea is, is that when we compare ourselves to other people, it ends up being a failed mechanism because there are always people that are better in whatever realm we're comparing. And it's more about thinking about what it is that I, you have to offer and that there is a platform for doing that. And the other part around strategies for combating with self-doubt, you need to think about if you don't do it, what kind of regrets will you have? And I always ask people, fast forward 20, 30, 40 years when you're reflecting on your life, the idea is not to have too many regrets. And if it means that you will feel that you're sorry 
that you didn't do it, that's the reason for doing it. Every person who tries something new has to risk something. We're risking our ego. You're putting your ego on the line. Whether you're a painter and artist and you're hanging up your renderings and you invite people into your museum or art gallery and they're going to evaluate and purchase or not purchase or whatever it is product that you're selling, it takes some risk. And so that takes a certain level of stamina. If you ask people and survey people generally, should I do this? And if you ask entrepreneurs, if you ask millennials, if you ask self-employed people, when they pulled everybody else around, do you think I should manufacture that product, create this product, sell that product? The majority of the general population will say, oh, no, don't do that. That's too scary. You will fail. And I always say they're projecting their own fears because it's human nature to stay safe. It's human nature to stay within the quadrant, the box that we know. But if you venture out and assuming you have success, and even if you fail, so you pick yourself up, dust yourself off, learn from that failure, regroup and refine what it is that you want to do. And that allows you to even create a better contribution or a better product or a better service. That's a really powerful thought experiment. The idea of, will I regret not doing this? It made me think of uh, Bronnie Ware's book, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. So the idea for the book is that, you know, Bronnie Ware asked, he was a palliative care nurse, asked people before they were dying, like what their regrets were. And number one, right, was that people didn't live a life true to themselves. Millennials, in my opinion, do have a much better paradigm and value set around not having regrets. So the idea is, is that they very much want to have life experiences, a better life balance, how they can contribute to the environment, charitable uh, contributions. And so their philosophy and their framework is about having less regrets and about maximizing enjoying life and not being sorry for things that they haven't done or as you suggest this author who talks about misgivings that you might have had and so when you are asking me Kyle about how to ensure and how to combat self-doubt that is about asking yourself the question even though I'm nervous even though I'm afraid if I choose not to do this how will I feel about this will this be okay it doesn't really matter Or will I feel that I've missed out on something and truly do have regrets? And if the answer is that you will have regrets, then you do need to take a gulp and plunge and try it. Because again, what is the absolute worst that could happen? Either you don't enjoy it, but now you've resolved it, you know that, or it didn't work out. And then, as I mentioned, you then fine tune that, improve what you're doing, and you come back in a more powerful way. So what are some ways that we could begin to practice that? Because it seems like we have to then embrace fear in our lives, right? It's not about getting rid of it. It's about feeling it and acting anyway. And it seems like that would be a practice. Do you have any tips or tools to start practicing that? You make a great point. So first off, I think it's accepting and understanding that anytime we want to acquire a new skill, anytime we want to engage in a different behavior, that is going to take us out of our comfort zone. So you need to accept that. And when we're taken out of our comfort zone, that's where anxiety happens. And why are we anxious? The reason we're anxious is because every one of us likes to be in control. 
because we say what's safe, what's predictable, and what's known. If you venture into uncharted water, then you don't know the outcome and you don't feel that it's predictable. So you need to get to a place in terms of a strategy. One is about accepting that you will be uncomfortable, that rather than thinking about it in a negative way, that there's some sharks at the other end of the pool or something at the other side of the wall that's awful, that in fact there is a sense of optimism and positivity about what can be achieved. And it really differentiates between those who are glass half empty and glass half full because glass half full people see that good will come out of it. And it's not that they're delusional or not realistic. They just believe that there is something from that experience, even if it doesn't work out, that they know that, that they've learned that. And then they can, as I mentioned, reshape or fine tune that. I also think that in terms of a strategy, it's important to think about what is the absolute worst that could happen. So there may affect your ego a bit. There may be a sense of, you know, humiliation. It didn't work out. I tripped up. So be it. Every one of us has failed in some realm or another. Every one of us is going to continue to fail as we try things. And so you have to normalize that failure and think about that as a learning curve around going forward. The other strategy is that I think successful people who take risks surround themselves with experts. So they get subject matter experts and they get opinions. You've been there. What experience did you have? What would you advise? What's helpful? What should I avoid? And then after you've gone through it, then go back to that expert and say, here's what happened. What recommendations would you make? And so you surround yourself with like-minded people who may not have done the exact same venture that you're doing, but have taken some risks and who have the same basic fears that every one of us has when it comes to doing something different, whether it's, you know, engaging in a startup, whether it's leaving the confines of an employer-employee relationship and being an entrepreneur, whether it's learning how to make wine, whatever it is that you want to do that's different, that entails all kinds of unknowns, is going to create anxiety. But there are people out there who have learned expertise that I would recommend anyone trying something new, you vet their point of view and you get their help and their support. So it's not possible or it's impossible or it's remote to be able to be purely successful all by yourself. Smart people have done it because they have counsel along the way. And what they do is at each step, you pivot. And so when you think about a game failing, it's rare that there's going to be some catastrophic failure because you're making small changes along the way. And as you make that change, then what you want to do is adjust so that if there's a small failure, you pivot, you turn, and you're agile, and you reposition yourself to get on a different course or a modified course. Those are some of the tools that I would employ to reinforce the courage and the boldness to go forward with whatever new endeavor that might be. So it seems like it's about partially, at least reorienting the way that we see failure, right? Because it's almost like failure has this very negative connotation, right? In school, failure is the opposite of success. It's an A or an F. So failure is a bad thing. And not that we should purposely pursue failure, but it seems like failure is inevitable, 
in some way, shape, or form on our journey to success. And so it's about looking at failure as a learning opportunity and an opportunity for growth rather than as something to be avoided. So we're just sort of reframing how we see it and how we approach it. That's extremely articulate, Carl. I really like what you said because you're right. We are trained in school along the continuum of an A and an F and that if you failed, you flunked and therefore you're a loser. Therefore, you don't have much opportunity in life. Therefore, you're not going to make it as opposed to you're right. When you reframe it to use your word, it's okay. So that's normal. It's natural. Every one of us or most of us have F's on our record somewhere, whether as a, as a child, student, or as an adult, there's something that we messed up on. And most often people in our world will forgive that failure because you acknowledge it, because we could relate to it. And because it is part of that adaptation, as you say, and part of that learning. And it just comes with the territory. And as you suggest, when you reframe it, then it normalizes it. And that's the difference between back to our earlier part of this podcast, entitled individuals never fail. What they do do is they fail, but they don't acknowledge that failure and they blame it and they externalize it on somebody else. The situation wasn't right. The factors weren't there. Variables were not um, aligned. That person wasn't bright enough. That person made a mistake. So they never own that failure. And so there's an externalization that goes on and a blaming that goes on. And so it becomes very difficult for that person really to achieve success in a way that's really respected by others. And they also... I think curtail how far they can go in life because they are not open to feedback, whether it's feedback in a relationship with your partner that tells you, you know, you're really bugging me. You're pissing me off today. Um, and here's why. And so that entitled person is going to deflect it and of course say, no, it's not me. It's you. It's you. You're in a bad mood today or you're off today. Couldn't be me. How can we practice receiving feedback or asking for feedback, because I know it's something that we have to open ourselves up to. And if that's a way to combat entitlement or even just to improve, right? Perhaps you're not entitled, but you're seeking personal development personally and professionally. What's a good way to invite feedback? It's a great question. So I think first off, if you first, you have to have the philosophy that you could always improve, that you must be a student of life, that there are things that you can do better at in every aspect of our world. So if you accept that, that's the first basis or platform for it. And then what I would recommend is that you surround yourself with one or two people who know you really well, who you can feel safe with, who you say, you know, this is hard. This is really hard for me to be honest with myself and to ask you to be transparent with me. But here are some of the things that I worry about around how I'm showing up, around how I communicate around how I am as a partner, as a friend, as an employee, as an entrepreneur. And I want you to give me feedback around when you think I could be more effective or when you think I could be kinder or when you think I can be more altruistic or when you think I need to set boundaries and not avoid conflict and be more direct. So when you ask someone that you feel you have a trusted person in your life to give you some honest feedback 
that starts the journey because it's done in a safe place. It's not done in public and you can go away and think about it. And it doesn't mean it doesn't sting. It will sting because it is our ego and it is natural to be our natural mechanism is to protect ourselves. It is that fight or flight response and we do naturally get defensive. And so you need to play back and remember, why did I ask this person for feedback? And this is part of trying to be a better human being, a better human in the world. And that's why I'm asking for that feedback. And then you can take away the feedback and you don't have to necessarily accept all the feedback. Some of it's going to resonate with you and say, that's, you know, an excellent point. And others will say, well, it may be valid, but it's not valid for me. That's not something that I want to change about myself because I like the fact that I'm very direct. I like the fact that people know where I stand and I don't want to always couch things in ways that are vague or ambiguous because I worry I'm going to hurt someone. So it depends on also you being selective around the feedback that you invite. And to flip it and look at the opposite side of that, how can we be better at delivering feedback and to help other people be receptive to it? So that's an excellent question. I think part of it is remembering that we have to always keep front and center the person, our respect for that person and their dignity. Every single one of us is fragile at any given point in time. And then we can't assume we know what's going on in their world. We don't know what that person's coping resources are. We don't know what's happening in their personal family, work life, health. And so if you're going to give feedback, you need to think about the timing. Am I doing it in a private setting? Am I doing it in front of all the friends in a bar? Where am I going to be doing this? And then your tone of voice around making sure that it's done in a sensitive and thoughtful way. And it can be prefaced around, I'm thinking about wanting to give you some feedback. Would this be a good time? Or should we pick another time? And when you say it like that, then you give the person it out. They can say, you know what? This is not the best time right now, but let's regroup and let's do it at a different time. Or yes, absolutely. You know, tell me about it. And so I think if you couch it in an example, Rather than saying, you do this, you can say, well, you know, when we were in this situation and we were, you know, talking together, we were walking down the hallway, what I experienced was this. And it made me feel upset or it made me feel hurt. Rather than saying, what you said hurt me. Because that is an attacking statement. But if you position it as, here's how I'm feeling from our dialogue then it allows that openness and you can keep that person in the arena to listen and then to respond. You also have to realize there are some people in your world who are never going to want feedback and they may resent it or they may just be too fragile or they may just be one of those entitled people that feel that there is no improvement and everyone should be grateful for their presence on this planet. So you can't always and in all relationships, we then need to decide, you know, what's the cost benefit analysis of having that person in our life? Do some of their shortcomings are not necessarily liabilities and the good things they bring outweigh those shortcomings. And so it's important with people in our lives to, to I think, continually take stock and evaluate what do they bring to my relationship? What do they bring to my world? It seems like What's really important with a lot of this, whether it's receiving feedback, giving feedback, overcoming entitlement, 
overcoming self-doubt, it really starts with like vulnerability, it seems to me, that you have to be able to open yourself up, that with entitlement, we're closing ourselves off. If we have self-doubt, we're not admitting that we have it and asking for help for overcoming it. If we're giving feedback, we're not you know, allowing the other person to have a say, we're trying to control the situation. If we're receiving feedback and we're not being vulnerable, we're shutting the person off as well. So it seems like vulnerability is really important for all of this. Absolutely. And so we always, from a societal point of view, look at vulnerability as a bad thing, that it makes us too sensitive, that as you suggested, you know, can make us shut down, that we are threatened. But I think for people who truly have matured, evolved, or sophisticated in the world with their relationships, business and personal, they are vulnerable. So they say, you know what? I messed up. I failed. I was insensitive. I wasn't kind today. I wasn't at my best. And so by saying that, you actually create intimacy because it draws people in because you can relate. You know what? I do that too. And it makes you feel that that person is way more human and they accept that they have shortcomings just like the rest of us. So that vulnerability actually improves our relationships and enhances it. But you're right. I think no one teaches us that. It comes from life lessons. It comes from maturity and it comes from evolving throughout life. And hopefully we do learn that lesson sooner in our trajectory than later in our lifespan, for sure. I want to bring it back to the self-doubt, self-value. How can we balance, you know, knowing our value and asking for our value with a sense of entitlement? I'd imagine it'd be pretty easy to go from, I'm deserving and worthy of what I want from life, what I want from this job, to having that be like, I should get everything I want, right? It, It seems like it's sort of a fine balance. So it is a balance, but I will tell you this, anecdotally, from my experience, from my practice, I do not know a single human being who's gone from undeserving to entitled. So it's not a fear you need to have. So if both are at you know either end of the continuum, the idea is to move the needle in. And so an undeserving person who is humble and grew up with modest values and feels that they don't deserve will move to a sense of that they're on an equal playing field. That's what you want that person to achieve. I'm on the same playing field as everybody else. Nobody else is better than me. I have a place in this world and therefore I have a voice and therefore I have a right to have a voice and to have an opinion. Not everyone's going to agree with me, like what I have to say, but I have an ability and a right and a deservingness to speak my mind. So I wouldn't worry too much about sliding over to going to, well, I'm the best thing that ever was. That's most remote and most unlikely. I appreciate that. Something that I've struggled with, I think I've alluded to that a little bit, is self-doubt and giving myself credit for the work that I'm doing. And so I think that was, part of it was almost that like, I don't want to come off that I deserve this or that I'm, you know, that I think that I just deserve it more than other people for whatever reason. And for me, it seems like, one of the things that I've been telling myself, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is that it's about saying, I deserve this, but I'm also willing to work hard for it. And I'm willing to show up and put in the time and learn and grow and you know make a positive impact on the world and on the people around me. And for that reason, I deserve to be happy or rewarded or whatever it is, right? Not just like, I deserve it because I'm me and I'm awesome. Absolutely right. And people respect that. People respect that you're putting in your hard work to demonstrate the value that you have and how you show up. And 
One of the things that I do want to comment to you, and as your listeners are paying attention to this podcast and what you're saying, the very strategies that you're asking me around how to respond to and strategize around self-doubt is what you actually are displaying yourself on this podcast. So one, you actually have been open and saying, this is something that I'm challenged with that I address. And so your listeners will in a very positive way, relate to that. It allows you to be human. You said, I'm vulnerable. You basically said, I haven't figured this out exactly. I'm not an expert in this. I need some guidance in this. And what should I do? Rather than coming across as, you know, let's have a podcast on self-doubt and you coming across as someone who's an expert in the opposite. And so instead, I think it allowed you to really capture your audience around showing your own vulnerabilities and showing that this is a work in progress for yourself as well. I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's this podcast and this whole endeavor has been a really interesting exercise for me, right? Because I, I think I know quite a bit about certain things and I think I don't know a lot about a lot of other things as well. And I've, I've wanted to use it as an exercise in self-growth. And so that's why when I see people like yourself doing this really amazing work around entitlement, self-doubt, overcoming that, you know, developing empathy and compassion. I don't see it as an opportunity for me to show how much I know about those things. I go, wow, I can learn a lot. And so in some ways it's selfish because I'm like, I can learn from this person. And then I hope that other people listening can identify sort of with what I'm going through and learn from the person that is sort of on the other side of that or is the expert. And so it's all for me, it's, it's an exercise in trying to be vulnerable and really practicing that because that's something that I've struggled with. And I'm this sort of like all in person. So if vulnerability is a struggle, I'm like, you know what? Let's just start a podcast. Let's, cause that makes sense. I have a difficult time opening up. So let me put it out there on the internet for everyone. But you know, it's, it's a great blessing for me to be able to connect with people like yourself and, and learning grow through this process because it's, it, that's really what it is for me as well. It's not just trying to pretend like I know these things. I'm, I'm able to grow and learn and evolve through this process. So it's beautiful for me and I, I appreciate that. Well, you've been brave and courageous, and so I really am impressed with your perspective and really the framework that you've used for the podcast. And so I think your listeners will be highly engaged just because of that. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I've been asking guests in the past, what's one question that you wish were asked? Uh, But I've been doing it sort of live. But So I asked you ahead of time, what's one question that you wish people asked more often? And the question that you said was, how can we maximize our currency when beginning a new job or, you know, seeking a new career. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. So when we start our jobs, we start off as an individual contributor. And so we're rewarded for getting stuff done, meeting deliverables, getting things done on time within budget. But as you advance your career, we really need to think about that person needs to think about the fact that they have two types of currency. So one is that performance currency, which I think is your table stakes, which is about what is your mandate? What are your objectives? What are your targets? And achieving those. The other part that we're not taught about and that if you are fortunate to have a mentor or a coach has to do with your personal or relationship currency. So when it comes to performance appraisal time and when it comes to bonus time, there are calibration meetings where you're not in the room. And those senior individuals are going to evaluate what your rating is. Did you meet expectations? Are you exceed expectations? Are you outstanding performer? 
which of course translates into dollars. It translates into your raise and bonus, which all matters. And so your relationship currency means that as you are evolving within your career, you should be developing a network, an internal network of people who are willing to risk their career on you. What I mean by that is they're willing to go to bat to give you an opportunity to help advance your career, to give you a different role, to take a risk on you because they believe in you. And when you have internal sponsors, then your relationship currency goes up and it's those individuals who are going to decide your career. And that's the difference between being rewarded for being a steady Eddie, somebody who keeps the lights on at work, does a good job, but there's nothing extraordinary about them versus somebody who surrounded themselves with decision makers, influencers who will speak really highly of you and will say, well, you know, I know Joe, I know Susie, they're fantastic. Here's how they contribute. Why don't you think about them for that role in your organization? And they are the ones that are as a vehicle to your progress within that organization. So Back to your question about starting out, Kyle, it is about those two types of currency, your performance and your relationship currency, and how are you working to establish both those things in parallel? What is one book that you think everyone should read? Well, you know what? I don't really have a recommendation for a particular book. And the reason is, is that there are no shortage of leadership books out there. I think it's about you know, searching what resonates for you. And as you suggest, so it may be the topic of self-doubt. For others, it may be conflict avoidance. For others, it might be, how do I be a better team player? So the best is to find a book that's in your area that you want to develop and then pursue that reference and pick something, obviously, that's skill-based, that's not theoretical, that's to your point and how you ask me, what are the strategies? What are the skills to help support what it is that you want to learn or get better at? Cindy, where can everyone find out more about you, what you're up to? How can they connect with you? So I have my website, which is cindywaller.com. So C-I-N-D-Y-W-A-H-L-E-R.com. I'm also on Twitter. At, you know, My handle is at Cindy Waller. And I also have a profile on LinkedIn. And so I am accessible and easy to access. And I'll be sure to link to all those in the show notes. And you're right. you I mean, you are uh, accessible. And I, I really appreciate that. That's how we connected was on LinkedIn. And I think more people should be using LinkedIn. Instead of just searching for jobs, they should really be using it to connect. It's been a great tool and a great platform for me for that Absolutely. reason. And it's how we met. And I'm grateful. And so, Kyle, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I was really looking forward to this conversation. And it definitely lived up to the hype that I had around it. And, and I really appreciate you and your time. I'm glad. Take good care. Thank you. You as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Aligned Influence Podcast. This is your host, Kyle Bowe. Please head to kylebowe.com forward slash gift to download your free copy of my new ebook, Change Your Mind, Change Your Life. Again, that's K-Y-L-E-B-O-W-E.com forward slash gift for my new ebook on five small steps you can use in your life right now to begin creating big changes. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, live on purpose.